This is The Guardian. I should say before we start, today's episode contains some swearing. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Comfort Eating. I'm in my kitchen. I'm just preparing to meet an Olympic gold medalist who's coming around to my house. I need to get myself into peak physical fitness, so I am making myself a delicious snack. I've got some plasticky squares of cheese. It's Edam, since you ask. And I'm wrapping a large gherkin in cheese. I'm going to give it a drizzle of mustard and stick it in my gob. Today, I am chatting to former long jumper, Greg Rutherford. You probably know him best from his part in one of the most iconic nights in British sport in history, Super Saturday at the London 2012 Olympics, when Greg won gold alongside Mo Farah and Jessica Ennis-Hill. Now, Greg is much more than one night almost a decade ago, though. In 2015, he became one of only five British athletes to hold the Commonwealth, European, Diamond League, World Champion and Olympic title all at the same time. He also made it to Blackpool on Strictly learned to swim in order to cross the channel for Stand Up to Cancer and won Celebrity Masterchef in 2019, which is something that I know a little bit about. Since retiring, things sound pretty idyllic for Greg. He lives out in the country with his growing family, his dogs and his chickens. But he did take up bobsleighing and attempt to qualify for the Winter Olympics last year. So I suspect that the quiet life isn't entirely for him. I'm hoping to find out about all of this and more. And crucially, what does the man eat? Greg Rutherford, 
Welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited about it. Very excited. One of my favourite things, food. I haven't seen you since MasterChef. No. Well, do you know what? I've been saving this because I've seen you, but you didn't see me. I, uh, no, it either was you or it wasn't you, but I'm almost 100% sure. You were getting going into the tube station at Euston Square. You're about to go down the stairs. Yes. And I sort of shouted, but then realised probably lots of people have shouted at you before. Because um, I was about 10 metres behind you. And then you sort of went down. And I was like, ah, and I had the awkward moment where other people are looking at me. And I was like, oh, that's not a good look. <laughs> I didn't see you. And I do use that tube station a lot. So that's that right. was, like was definitely you. me. <laughs> It was, it was, you know, those moments you just go, oh, no, no. I don't that is like exactly the, the, the gasp that I want men <laughs> to make when they see me going down the street. That, oh. that, well, that's what happened. That was exactly what happened. Then everybody else looked. I was just like, you're right, mate. I was like, I know, I know. No, I don't, I'm going to have to go. <laughs> right. Let's get back to the very important stuff. What ultimate comfort food does an Olympic gold medalist took into. Okay, here we go. <laughs> now, it's a bit of an odd one, I think. This is, this is really oh, Greg, the, the they're all odd ones here. on this show. Do you, nothing... do you want me to take the tinfoil off or do you want... Uh, take the tinfoil okay, off. here we go. Oh, oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, no, 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 That's no, no. That's the no. face I expected you to no, pull at No, all. no, no. Right, okay, so what I'm seeing is, is this a brioche? There's a brioche bun It's there. a brioche bun. And there is bacon in there. Oh. And there is banana in there. Now, the brioche has been dipped in basically what you'd normally dip eggy bread in. So egg, cinnamon, and then put in the oven. Right. This is one of those snacks where when it's first unveiled, you go, oh my God. And then my mouth's kind of watering. <laughs> as bacon, I'm looking because ba- bacon, banana, and brioche. Are we going in? Yeah, absolutely. Are we going- yeah, well, hang on. Well. Right. Oh, it's very oily. Hang on a second. Oh, so good. That's good. Do you know what bacon and banana taste like? (laughs) Exactly as you would imagine. (laughs) Oh, no. What am I doing? I forgot obviously the key bit. Oh. Maple syrup. So I got so excited to show you bacon, bananas and brush. We've not added the maple syrup. You need maple syrup in there. I'll let you put as much as you wish to put in there. Sorry. That's one of the key ingredients. Right. mm, Actually... It worked better with the maple syrup. Right? The maple syrup lifts it just. Oh, now. there we go. So hang on. When did you first make this? Early days mm. of, I guess, me and Susie dating then. So, nearly ten years ago now. I wasn't really able to eat this sort of food very often, so it was it was sort of seen as a massive treat. But then, obviously, I retired from sport and could do what I like. So I ate food like this a lot, and I definitely put on a lot of weight because of it. But it was so enjoyable. I'm trying to take you seriously in this interview, but you've now got grease coming down like both sides of you. Both sides of your that's mouth. That's part of the beauty it's of like... it. That's, that, that's, that's what you have to do. You just have to let it ooze just... out of your mouth. Just get a mouth feel. Oh. <laughs> you and Susie met in 2013. Mm-hmm. So... Did you woo her with uh, your accomplished chefing then? Well, let me tell you how that went. So, Susie came to the house for the first time and 
at that point, so this would be 2013, so it was all a bit mad. So I was, I've literally just put maple syrup all over my face. We literally were, I was whizzing around <laughs> all over the place. And the only thing I would say that I cooked that was slightly different to just like chicken and a bit of vegetables, that's mm. pretty much my diet. Yeah. So I'd love doing like a roast dinner ever so often. Mm. In particular, a leg of lamb. Okay. So I used to f- sort of just make that if I'd have friends over or whatever else all the time. And basically, as you came to the house, opened the fridge and all that was in the fridge, because I've been away, was a, a leg of lamb, which yeah. I, th- I must have bought a couple of days before, whatever it was. And I was intending on making a roast. Yeah. I hadn't bought any of the other ingredients. But what I thought was, I was like, do you know what I'll do? I'll roast this leg of lamb. I'll make it really beautiful so you can do it properly. Yeah. And really impress it, show that I'm a, I'm a good cook. And yes. I'm like the modern man, I can now cook amazing roast dinners. And you clearly like this, this woman. Well, yeah, I mean, it was the only food that was in the house as well, to be honest. It was either that or dust. So, I mean, it, there wasn't, <laughs> it, was, it was leg of lamb or nothing else. Anyway, so I, I made this leg of lamb. And obviously nothing else to go with it. And I basically just served meat on a plate. Oh, God. She was like, oh, yeah, it looks great. Yeah, brilliant. Anyway, so I sort of eating away. I'd eaten loads. And so I'm going to go get a bit more, whatever else. Came back out, nothing on her plate. Well, I had two Labradors at the time. I've got one now. <laughs> Bless Dexter. He's no longer with us. Yeah. Dexter was was just going mental for, for her, her purse. Just going nuts. Just like in there <laughs> trying to get it, whatever else. And she's like, oh, yeah. And I was like, go away. Go away, mate. Go away. Years later, basically I found out, well, obviously I knew, Susie doesn't really eat meat, right? so I didn't really know that at the time. She hates lamb. That's oh. one of her, like, pet hates oh. is lamb. On top of it, she just scraped it into her purse rather oh than, than eat it. So the dog was going mad and then found out years later that, yeah, that's basically what happened. So all this love and attention I've given to this leg of lamb ended up in a purse. So um, no impressions there, no, nothing good anyway. What is it about men where they go... <laughs> Oh, my speciality is a leg of lamb, but you don't just do the lamb. A roast potato, well, perhaps. No, of course, now I do a pea, a maybe potato or something lovely oh. like that with it. Just really get into there and just, I know, yeah. I'd, nowadays, I'd probably do a puree of some sort. I mean, I'd really go to town, but then, no idea. So I you, no idea. Well, hang on. So you were living alone in a house with two Labradors and yeah. nothing in the fridge but a leg of lamb. She must have really fancied you. <laughs> Honestly, no, that, was, this kind of loner with his empty fridge <laughs> and, his, and his two dogs. It was a sad, yeah. it was quite sad actually at that point. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah. the, we got past the leg of lamb, we moved on from that, and then here we are, three children later. Well, you were still a professional athlete when you became dad to your first child, Milo. So I'm trying to work out how do you fit being a first-time dad and that life, that training life? Probably the way to say it would be like, well, you just juggle both and make it work. But fundamentally, as an athlete, you're a very selfish person. You, you have to be. And as much as I had a child at that point, for me, it was going into, I actually went into one of my most successful periods as an athlete, but such an important part that mm. I effectively carried on as I was. Yeah. And and that meant that there was a lot of pressure on Susie from that point of view, because she was living in the house and we, we sort of live in the middle of nowhere. So she hated the fact that I was away a lot and she had to raise the children and the dogs, which she, drove her mad. She was in... In England, were you in America? I was often in America, yeah. So what I would do is as much as I could, they would come out with me. But there would be periods of maybe two months where I'd be away um, and I'd be training. You must have been knackered and pushing yourself to the limit and and then away from 
the most important thing in your life? It was, yeah. For, for me, I found it very difficult because I love being a dad. Like, I'd always wanted to be a dad. And and for me, that was super important. So then when I was away, hence why I wanted them out with me as much as I possibly could. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was really tough. But what was amazing about it as well, actually, for me, is as much as the life is incredibly singular and selfish, what I then very quickly realized now I had this child there was actually... The little things that I used to worry about, like if I'd had a bad training session or whatever else, bad competition, didn't matter. Because I'd go home to Milo and he was a small child. So he didn't care. You always wanted to be a dad. So was it exciting when Susie got pregnant? Very, yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Mm. It, it was an interesting conversation. So I, I come from quite a conservative background in the way of religion and everything else. Like it was quite a yeah. quite a strong system in my parents grandparents whatever else and it was very very difficult telling my grandma <laughs> she didn't take it too well to be totally because we weren't married and that yeah. sort of stuff um so I was very very excited and yeah. to be honest at that point I was like yeah, it is what it is but yeah it was it was yeah. more difficult explaining that to family members I think more than anything else what were the next nine months like so Susie suffers from a thing called hyperemesis gavaldum which is um okay effectively severe morning sickness but it's to the point where you're in and out of hospital on drips and that sort of stuff you're very very unwell and it's 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 very very harsh condition for a lot of women it it causes severe problems sadly a lot of women choose to then have terminations because they Mm. can't deal with it anyway it's so bad um and watching it massive weight loss can you eat weight loss can't eat no smells you can't I, i effectively for especially for rex and daphne the last two I, I'm I'm her carer effectively for about four months, so she doesn't leave the bedroom. Um, you can't be in the room more than about thirty seconds because smell sets you off. So severe smell, light. You have massive food versions like you can't really go near food. But then on the flip side of it, then your body is screaming for certain things to the point where yeah. if it's not there, it's like all oh, hell breaks loose. So I would have to have like a stack of of say toast ready for about six a.m. And if it wasn't there, it was for Susie, it was just because her body's screaming for nutrients, yeah. but she can't keep anything in. So it's like a horrible, horrible dynamic that you're in. So it's pregnancy is rough. Greg, I've got to ask, but you keep having more <laughs> babies. And I'm massive, I'm in massive admiration for you doing it. Yeah. Wow. I, I take mean, my out to like, Susie for it, really. Yeah, both of you. Yeah, it's. The thing is, look, you, from my point of view, I don't have to go through the pain and, and, and issue of it. For me yeah. to just make sure that I'm looking after somebody, that's not an issue to me at all. It's very sad to watch somebody go through it because oh, in a very bad way. I mean, it's they're incredibly unwell. How but- do you make, when you're in the kitchen and you're trying to make food that's tempting... How do you do it? Well, you have to listen to what they want. So anybody suffering with it, there will be certain things that they suddenly desire. Now with Daphne, what was quite, not funny, but what I used to do. So she basically just wanted only beige food, but it was very specific. Chicken goujons with some mashed potato. And that was all I could could do. I mean, it is great food, really. So then what I would do with it, I would then arrange it in different ways to make it look better. So some days it would be a spider. Other oh. days it would be like some form of face or whatever else, just because obviously I couldn't talk to her particularly. So I would literally go in, present this food, and I would know as I was walking away that hopefully she's at least had a smile at it and then would eat it and then it would be in the bucket again. But um, damn, damn you, Greg Rutherford, that is the most adorable thing <laughs> I have ever 
heard. <laughs> oh, man- I mean, that is love, though. Big gestures, they come and go, right? <laughs> Anyone can take you to Paris. <laughs> I've done that with her, actually, yeah. Exactly. But who, who's going to stick around making your chicken goujons into a spider? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about young Greg. It's not going to surprise anyone that you were a sporty kid. You grew up in Milton Keynes with your parents, your older brother and your younger sister. Were you one of those sporty families? Yeah, pretty much. My dad worked all the time, so he was always really busy, self-employed builder, so he was constantly working. Um, and that was probably the one time we ever spent time together was was through sport, really. That was like the main thing. Yeah. And that would be maybe kicking a ball out the back of the house or as I then started joining clubs and stuff, he would come and watch and things, which was always nice when he could. He was a builder, but he yeah. was also a ski instructor. Yeah, bizarrely. Oh, my God. So... So my, my dad effectively... That's so manly. It's, it's the most it's, manly thing in the whole world. But it's the weirdest thing because of our background. So my dad effectively came from severe poverty, severe yeah. poverty. Um, I mean, stories of, of when they would have their cornflakes in the morning, him and his brother and my grandma would share the milk. So you'd put your cornflakes in, you'd eat them, you'd then pass the bowl along. And I mean, like really yes. bad. And Proper. that was if food was there, of course. Mm. So then... He then had a family friend who, when he was, I think, I don't know, 18 or 19 took him skiing with them because they were clearly a bit more affluent. And then he caught the bug. He then was a ski instructor at Hemel and Tring Dry Ski Slope and then would go over seas and do that. So it would supplement income as well because we, we came from a very, very working class family, like very, very working class. Food at times was quite often the same and whatever else because access to it wasn't, there wasn't a lot, an awful lot to, to sort of have. So yeah, so we then yeah. also learned to ski, which is the most bizarre thing. I, I mean- I would say that with regards to jumping class, learning to ski is one of those things. It is. Because <laughs> there, is no, there isn't any skiing. No. And, <laughs> when, and, you're, when you're working class. So that, that is incredible. You could all ski. It was bizarre. Yeah. And, but it was the weirdest thing <laughs> as well. I'm sorry. Because, I don't know why I find this No, funny. no, but I do as well. Because it, and skiing to me became probably one of the most important things. It was my first proper sporting yes. love as well. And it was, I think because to us, the idea of then going overseas to ski yes. was such a big deal. I mean, like to, to the idea of, I mean, we'd often go to Andorra yes. and back then it was like super cheap and whatever else. And it was like a bit yeah. rough, whatever else, but it was the mountains. It yeah. didn't matter. It was the most incredible thing to get out there. And we'd go every few years if we could. Were you all really competitive at skiing? You were a competitive family. Uh, me and my brother were definitely. Yeah, but we were quite competitive with most things that we did. I think sadly, maybe on one level as well, sport was probably then the only way you connect as well, which I think yeah. then can create quite a an interesting dynamic, especially when you're not doing sport or whatever else, then there's not really anything to have a connection about, which I think then that, that yeah. makes certain things a bit more difficult. So for example, when I was at school, schooling wasn't that important to me, learning effectively, as you can probably tell by the way I sound. Um, I didn't learn an no. awful lot and I was a bit naughty at, at school as the naughty kid. And I was, do I, I like making people laugh. That was the thing. I mean, I'm not particularly, I'm not like some comedian or anything else, but I just act the fool. So when does this begin, right? When do you start being a bit of a, I'm trying to think of a nice word for it. Knob. <laughs> <laughs> 
because <laughs> in my second secondary school, any, anybody who knew me at secondary school, I think would probably have that assessment of me. I was always nice. I was, I was nice to like most. Did you get people, kicked but, out of class. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Did you? If I didn't like the class, I'd, yeah, I was out. Yeah. Did you skive off? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the thing was, in my secondary school years, probably from in year nine and ten, probably even to eleven, a little bit. I went for a phase where I really rebelled against everything, and I would like get drunk all the time yeah. with mates, smoking, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And obviously from the family I was from, you didn't do that anyway. Again, quite heavily religious and things. Yeah, you f- so your family are religious, <clears throat> they're quite conservative. Yeah. And then you've just... I went completely off the rails for a period of time, yeah. Part of my life was purely that connection through sport. But then, and again, when that's the only real connection you have, and that's what's constantly in your life, you then start wanting to do other things. The other thing was obviously, I'd be at sports clubs a lot, and I'd have mates going out, having fun, getting together, whatever else. I wasn't really doing that. So I'm massive. And I went so far the other way that it was just quite self-destructive until I had this sort of sliding doors moment. Did the police come to your house? A few times, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was bad. Imagine that. Getting taken home in a police car. Yeah. On the street. I mean, the thing was, because it's all about keeping up appearance, isn't it? Like that's the big thing. Yeah. So if, if, if your son's being brought home in a police car... Yeah, we got the hiding, to say the least. What did, what had you actually done on that point? <laughs> Trespassing. I remember, remember the ones we had like a school not far from us, like a primary school. And it was during, uh-huh. I think, school holiday. We were on the roof. Oh, and getting on the roof the is a thing. big thing. It's the greatest thing. And it had, if I remember correctly, it still had metal drain pipes. And yeah. we used to be able to pull ourselves up the metal drain pipes. That's one of the most vivid ones I remember. Because the irony was I could have run away and got away. But it was still the days where you got taken home. Right? Yes. They didn't take me down the station. Mm. Where do you live, son? And you, you couldn't dare lie because they'd take you home. So taken out. Oh, not good. We I had a mate as well who was a bit of a scally. And... And I think this oh, is, I love it. You actually was, think that you were led astray <laughs> by the bad crowd. I'm, I believe you I, were the bad crowd. <laughs> I was definitely proud. <laughs> but I, I feel like I still had a moral compass in me where I knew what I was doing bad and I felt bad doing it. But I was never the alpha. And that's the one thing. I was never the alpha in my, any of my friendship groups growing up. I was always a bit of a follower. Yeah. And I think I've realised it was often, there was a carp also near where, where I lived and we'd nick chew it, fizzy chewits. I used to love fizzy chewing. I didn't have any money. This was the other thing as well. So I didn't have any money, but so we, I'd go and nick the old packet of fizzy chewits here and there. I love the fact that you still, in your heart, think that big lads confused you <laughs> into doing this. Well, I very and much it realise was... it's wrong now. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and it wasn't, and it, none of this was you. <laughs> so I'm surmising that there was girls involved around this point, cigarettes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Drinking, turning up at school drunk. Yeah. Getting on the school roof. What stopped this? Where's the turning point? What is it? Underneath all of this, this is why I always think I was led astray. Because mm. underneath it all, I always still believed I'd become a professional sportsman or something. Now, I did every sport I possibly could, tried lots of different sports, had a lot of fun doing it, etc. I then had this thing. So we used to do a thing, and, and don't do this, because it's so stupid. So we used to do a thing called car surfing. And we used to drive around these country lanes on the roof of the car, just holding on. I mean, it's so stupid. The speeds you get up to, I mean, you die. If you I came mean, off, you'd die. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous. Mean. So I had this moment and I'll never forget it. So driving along and there's me and my friend on the roof. And for some reason, suddenly I've had this like, it's not out. I mean, I'm not really into the whole out of body. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's different, but I had this, this thought then came into my head and I saw myself coming off the car, hitting a tree and that being me done. Yeah. And it was as if it's and there was this tree coming towards us, and this all happened very quickly in my brain. And it was as if 
at that moment, anything that I was potentially going to become, which obviously I didn't know because I was a scally basically at that point, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where anything I was going to become would never happen because I could come off this car and I could hit the tree and that would end anything. I'd be, be killed or paralyzed, whatever it be. Now, there was a moment where a coach got brought to Milton Keynes Athletics Club and I got asked to to just go back and give it a go and try out with him. And it so happened that that was the catalyst for me to keep going. But what it was, I think it was more than the people that I met within it. So mm. my best friend, if you like, a guy called Andrew Steele, who's somebody that became so important in my life from about the age of 18, 19 through to this day. And instantly... Andrew made me accountable just through things he was saying. So there's this one moment, and I forget, we're in Australia for the Commonwealth Games. First time I'd ever left Europe. It's a big deal going to the Commonwealth Games. I qualified, I was what, 18, 19 or whatever else. And I'll never forget it. We're crossing a road in the car, so going across a road, and somebody beeped Andrew driving. And I just made like a flippant comment, like joking, just like, oh, I should get out and smack him. But it's just messing around, of course. It's never going to happen, like just being stupid. And yeah. I just remember telling him, he's going, why would I do that? Yeah. And in that moment, I felt so stupid. Yes. And I've told about this so much. And I just realized that that sort of laddish behavior, if you like, just doesn't cut it. So all of a sudden, I latched on to this person that basically made me accountable, made me realize that don't be a knob. <laughs> and that changed me. When you were at home with your family, what is on the menu every night when you, if you get in and you sit down and you have your tea, what's, what's getting cooked? Well, it's one of a couple of things, something that still to this day, I, re- I'm not a massive fan of chicken casserole, bone in mm. chicken casserole. Bone in chicken casserole. Yeah. Cause obviously bone chicken's cheaper. So that was yeah. a big thing for, and look, thighs. my mum could cook well, it was always thighs, of course. Yeah. And, my mum can cook well, my grandma could cook well. And that was some of my first love of food, I think, came from watching them cook. Mm. But it was the same food a lot. And my parents both worked, so I think that was probably a part of, of the was reason it, as well. So if it was a thigh in the chicken casserole, was the skin on the chicken? Yeah. Did your mum sear the no. chicken? This, 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 and that's why and, it but then scars it was, you for life. It does. And that the flappy thing was, skin. It's grim to look at the thing. And it shrunk as well. Sometimes there's, the hair on there. Uh, yeah, yeah, always. Yeah, there's always the odd hair. <laughs> and again, I think this is often the situation when you're cooking on a budget, mm, things like yeah. trying to fluff up a sauce or whatever else doesn't often happen. And I mean, that was another thing. On a Sunday, we'd often have a roast dinner, which was always really, really good. But the yeah. gravy was like water. Was this at your house? This at my mum's house. Yeah, mum's house, yeah. I've heard that you often went to your grandparents and they did there. roasts as well. Yes, yes. So, that, oh, so this was always a... Grandma, my, my grandma, I still go see her. I saw her actually last week, we went to the zoo last week. And um, we still talk fondly of her chocolate cake that she'd always make in the roast mm. dinners. Yeah. The gravy at my grandma's was always so much better. Oh. <laughs> it was thick. And yeah. I love thick gravy. And there's something about it. Because I think with a thicker gravy, obviously, it, it just has more flavour in it. And I think my yeah. grandma used some of the juices from the meat and everything. It did, did like that. And But the problem is, I think when you're obviously a working mum, because my dad wasn't around a lot because he was always at work. Mm. If you're a working mum with three children, who are driving you nuts. I think probably just getting food out is just what it what it's, it's about more. So that chicken casserole was a very easy thing to make. Was there more of a, like a party atmosphere around at Gran and Granddad's house? Was that more getting together and celebrating something? Yes. So I'd go there for like some of my school holidays and things as well. I'd just spend time there, which yeah. I really enjoyed. So 
we'd play a lot of Yahtzee, me and my grandma, like still to this day, like a lot of Yahtzee, right. love a bit of Yahtzee. And then we just, I just hang out there a lot as well. And my granddad was still around then as well. And, and the food was always quite good. And, and the cake, and we'd always have this thing, Wolves, I think Wolves maybe took it over, it was a Romantica cake, toffee-ish, chocolate ball things on the top and meringue sort of thing. I used to love it. And it was another thing that I'd go there and look forward to having because yeah. we'd have the roast dinners and things. And then we'd have like that, that. And it was always like my grandma knew. So she would, she would make sure it, that we either went down and got it together or we went and got it. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How do you actually find out that you're good at long jump? Because I'm quoting you on the technique here. You run really fast in a straight line and jump into a sand pit. <laughs> I love that it that- down a little bit. There's certainly a lot more than that. But it- yeah, that's, that's, that's what I love to say about it. Because, I mean, the basics are that you run a straight line, jump into a sand pit. Yeah. How, more- look, come on. How does that, how one minute you're a scally, and then how do you work that out? Where's this moment where you... So I started off in athletics as a sprinter. So the one thing with every sport that I ever tried, the one thing I had was speed. So I was quicker than most other kids. Yeah. So the reason I knew I could jump, and this is a bizarre one. So at the back of my parents' house, my dad had this load, these basically tiles left over from a job and they were just stacked against the fence. And I used to just standing jump onto them. And they're obviously yeah. different heights and you could see right. how high I could jump. So I, I had a really good box jump as it would be referred to. Yes. I didn't realize it was a box jump at that point. But I had the ability. Now, look, I say you run in a straight line, jump into a sandpit. Now, if you don't have the ability to jump, it's irrelevant. Yeah. So you actually have to have it in you. Genetically, you have to have the ability to jump. And then from that, I went to the, the athletics clubs to say, there's a sprinter. I got beaten by another guy that came along. I hated being beaten. Absolutely hated it. So I was like, well, I'll try the long jump. And my first coach believed I'd be a triple jumper, not a long jumper, um, but stuck with the long and here I am. You turned pro at 18 and I was surprised to find out that you felt conscious of your body. Massively. Even though you were an athlete. Yeah, no, athletes are all different What's shapes and sizes. Wow. And, and look, athletics is, one thing I'll say about athletics, and this is for anybody listening to children who want to get into sport, an athletics club is an amazing thing to try because it will accommodate any shape, size or background. That's the beauty of it. And you need very little to be an athlete, which I think is is the is a wonderful thing about it. It's accessible to most and you can do it. Now, I went down there and one thing I never learned about clearly with this snack as we started on is nutrition. 
and a slight misconception with the event I did. So I did a speed power based event. So effectively the longest I'd run in training, especially in the last 10 years of my career would be about 150 meters. And that's a sprint and it's all out and it's hard work, but you burn different energy sources. And this is the where you, you have to learn about food, of course, because yeah. certain foods you store in different ways and different energy sources are used through different movements. So if I was going for a long endurance-based runs, then yeah, sticking in pasta, rice, carb-based yeah. foods makes sense. When you're just doing speed power-based stuff, your body doesn't get into those energy stores. So you store it as fat. I mean, I'll be totally honest as well. There was a lot of sugar going into my diet at that point as well. What was your advice back then? Just this day, I love sweets, like sour sweets I'm absolutely obsessed with. Now, the one story that I think probably sums up me entirely um, in my early days, I was living in a place called Northwood, which is in Middlesex. And I'd moved out. It's the first time I'd sort of moved out. I was what, 18, 19 or whatever. And I used to drive to South Watford, um, Tesco's it was a really big Tesco so about 25 yeah. minute drive or so from, from Northwood there was a Waitrose in the village but it was like to me that was Waitrose was really really posh so, too scared to go in uh, I was no genuinely <laughs> to Northwood as well anybody who knows the area of Northwood there's a lot of really posh people that live there as well and I was genuinely afraid of going into Waitrose I couldn't bring myself to go in there no, no, you don't know what a crouton is. Off you go. Um, and it, so for, for, for me, so I used to drive this, but anyway, they used to have a Krispy Kreme in there as well. Oh, So, and I do like a donut as well. I do like yeah. a donut. And I bought, <laughs> I bought the mixed selection of 12 Krispy Kreme donuts. Yeah. Put them on, I can still see myself doing it because it definitely didn't happen only once. Put it on the chair next to me, uh, the seat next to me, sorry, in my car. From the time I left the Tesco car park to getting home, I'd eaten all of them. Oh my God. I'd imagine the amount now do you know what nowadays i really enjoy just like a ring donut there's something about the, the simplicity of it that i really enjoy but then when i was 19 or whatever you give me that triple chocolate strawberry jam filled custard donut like i'll splat that straight in the face Delicious. i was all at, and i ate them all and i think this is maybe where my self-consciousness came from a little bit as well i was known for being able to eat a lot so i'll never forget we were in a south african training camp this must have been 2008 maybe and me and another athlete was a kilo of ribs plus all the trimmings in this restaurant near where we were staying. And I ate the entire lot in seven minutes. I can eat very quickly. And I think it also comes from growing up. Me and my brother would race. Yeah. Because we had a household where if you didn't eat, you didn't, eat, you didn't leave the table. Yeah. So, and believe me, I sat there for, for hours at times. It was brutal. So we ate, if we could, if you could bring it, you would eat it all and you'd eat it quickly. So we'd race. When you walk into the changing rooms and you are carrying a bit of weight, do other athletes... Do they say it? Do they oh, come massively. and do, do uh, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they kind so of come and wobble your bits? Yes, and- yeah. One of the one of the hardest. And he was a good friend of mine, and I don't think he meant it in like to try and upset me, but because I don't think it, and nobody would have known that I had a bit of an issue with it. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget one of the guys coming over and grabbing my lower belly fat in his hand and like pulling, it and going, "Oh, look at that, look fat," and and it just like it it hurt me so deeply because I didn't know what to do about it. And I knew it was there, but I was sort of like trying to ignore the fact that it was there, but to have that done. So I think that probably shaped me a little bit going forward. I've heard that at about this point, they start calling you the ginger wizard. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so I, that basically got coined because when everything started falling into place for me, so 
I joined a, a coach called Dan Paff, who is an American man that was brought over from the US and to work in London with, with me and a few others. Dan was the one that made me aware of how to eat properly, how mm. to train properly, which is the most important thing, mm. actually how to change my body so I could be physically better for a longer period of time. So, because I mean, I had horrendously bowed legs. I mean, when I was five or six, I was often in the hospital where they, I mean, they were talking about shattering and resetting my legs in the 90s. I mean, that old fashioned way of doing it because I had bowed legs. What Dan did, he, he started to work on drills and things to straighten my legs a bit. So he f- managed to straighten my legs through proper movement patterns, got me fit and healthy. So then what would happen is all that talent that I had that I could never harness and nobody could ever look after properly started to come through. So I then got referred to as the ginger wizard because all of a sudden I could do it when it mattered. So I could pull it out the bag. So if I went to a major champs or something, all of a sudden I was now a medal contender and winning medals because I just pull it out the bag at some point. I might've had a crap season. Yeah. I just pull it out the bag. So then I started getting referred to as the ginger wizard from that point of view. So, under this new regime, how do you eat chicken every single day? I knew by eating better, I would perform better, which meant that I had a chance of winning these goals that I'd set myself, like becoming Olympic champion. Yes. So, for me, it became a lot easier. But then it was also techniques. So you're I'd still go- opening the bloody fridge and seeing chicken. Yeah, but I, looked f- I kind of looked forward to because what I would do is I'd throw so many different things in the bowl to season the chicken. Okay. It would come out a bit different every single time. I never measured anything. I never did anything else. I'd just throw things in. That, for me, was kind of exciting. But then the other thing I would do, if for a few weeks I've been eating really, really well, and I really fancied a pizza, I would just have the pizza. Yes. And I wouldn't feel guilty about it. That's the big thing. Saying cheat meal is a terrible idea as well. And that was that was the buzzword and the, the buzz phrase for it when I was an athlete. But that, again, implies that what you're doing is bad. You shouldn't be doing it. When in actual fact, I think for your mental health and everything else, allowing yourself bits of of things that you thoroughly enjoy, you should do. But also you have to learn to enjoy eating maybe what some people would see as a relatively bland, yeah, existence on one level, I guess it is, from the point of view of food. You're leading up to the London Olympics in 2012. How were you mentally preparing yourself? I mean, you must have been in a very, very strange place in your head around that point. When yeah, you were... very odd. And the, the whole build up to it was was the weirdest thing. And for me as well, it was probably different to the other guys that won on the night because I came in slightly under the radar. So the build up to the London Games, all the talk was on other athletes. So I probably had less pressure on me. What I did, which, yeah, we talk about as visualization now. And I have my dogs and walk my dogs every day. And where I live, again, it's beautiful. It's a huge wooded area in Bedfordshire. Um, there's often not loads, of, especially during the day, not lots of people around. So if you need to be before training, after training, often, I would take the dogs out. And every single day for years, every day, I would basically commentate on my own Olympic final. And I changed what happened in that competition every single time, distances, what other people did conditions everything but the outcome was always the same I always won (gasps) and I did that every single day for a number of years so then when I walked out there there probably was a level of it where I'd mentally rehearsed this so much that I believe in my ability to do this so if I get it right I can win this Olympic title and I will seize the opportunity that was there 
And you did it. And it happened, yeah. Yeah, it's still quite a, it's quite a weird one. I remember, I, you speak to previous Olympic champions, and I remember in the build-up to it, speaking to certain people, they'll say, you never, especially at the time, you never realise how important it is and how massive a deal it is to become Olympic champion. They said it's, it's often years and years down the line, it suddenly hits you. Mm-hmm. And that was most certainly the, the thing for me because I became obsessed with then winning more. It wasn't, mm-hmm. so I, I never sort of dwelled on the fact that I've become Olympic champion. It's like, right, I've got to win more. I've got to prove everybody that I can keep winning. And probably wasn't until I retired that I suddenly thought like, bloody hell, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Did you celebrate that night? Well, the way the night went for me, I was so lucky. So I stood in front of the Olympic flame and I could still to this day remember the, the heat of the flame on yeah. the back of my neck as Mo went round to win his 10K. And I was there at the end. So I had probably the best seat in the house to watch Mo win, which is amazing. I'd been jumping when Jess won. So this hot, and then I win. And it's just, everything's going on. It's just, and I remember joking the year before when they released the program, I said, it doesn't matter if I break the world record because Jess and Mo are either side of me and nobody will remember me if I, if I jump on that. What I obviously didn't realise was Great Britain had never won three Olympic gold medals in one night in track and field history. Yeah. And it became what it was, which was Super Saturday. Super Saturday. Which just to still be associated with that still blows my mind. But then what happens is, so I finally got out of the stadium by about half 12, one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And then I walked into my room and you share a room and that you share an apartment, share a room. Mm. And I was sharing with my, with my best friend, Steve Lewis. And I'll never forget it. I walked in through the door. And so it's like, two, he's competing the next day, bear in mind. So I'm trying to be silent as I can. You don't want to wake anybody up. As much as you want to sort of cheer, you don't want to wake anybody up. So you're walking through the door. And I'll never forget it. Steve just sits up, bolt up, and goes, well done, mate. And then just goes straight back to sleep. <laughs> and, and that moment was, it was such a brilliant way of just the life of a, of other athletes in yeah. that moment. Just literally, yeah. well done, mate. And then I laid on my bed. Staring at the ceiling, it's a small single bed. It's no, it's not really much luxury. Yeah. It's a pretty hard match from yeah. everywhere. I stared at the ceiling till about four o'clock in the morning or so, and part of me believed that if I went to sleep, I'd wake up and it wouldn't be true. Yeah. So I got up, I walked around the village, and I went and sat in the big food hall. And the food hall was a great place in the Olympic Village. The food hall is one of the most important places where everybody goes. Yeah. And I remember just sitting there outside the McDonald's, which is in the middle there, because you can't touch it beforehand, of course, because it wasn't there. I think, I can't remember what, I, I had something, I think like I had an apple pie or something from there anyway. Mm. And I just sat and looked around as the new Olympic long jump champion. Well, drunk athletes and coaches were rolling in. The odd Brit saying, congratulations. Tom Daly was one of them actually come and sit down with the other divers, said, well done. They then stumbled off and thinking, well, that's that then. Done the thing. And then you have to try and process it. It's impossible. Are you processed it now? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think you probably never process it because what you don't realise, I think, with regards to to sports in particular, sport means so much to so many people and it's their escape. And that's the beauty of sport. For mm. for if, if you come from if you're into sport or family sport, whatever else, sport for, for people that maybe aren't having a great time, whatever else, it's their way of escaping. Mm. So if I speak to people that loved the London games, they all tell me about what they did or what happened on on the night of august the 4th mm. 2012 but for me it's entirely different mine is entirely the story of that gold medal and getting there and what happened to get there so it'll always be completely different so processing of it is probably just accepting that it's happened 
Yeah. But you'll never realize how much it means to others as well. As much as it's to me, it means the world, of course. But for other people on one level, it maybe means more, which is a very weird way of putting it. But I think to some media, that, that's the way it is. Even though you've achieved your ultimate goal and then retired, you've done Strictly, <laughs> MasterChef, casually swum the channel. <laughs> <laughs> and then you even tried to get into the bobsleigh team at the Winter Olympics. I'm an idiot. Yeah, that's basically what it is. <laughs> Do you think that you're always going to be competing in some form? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I've had to accept that. Picking up a skill and trying to push my body to the extremes I think is something that I will, as long as I physically can, will always do. Because there's some something I get from hurting myself when it comes to, to working hard. So if I'm training, I can push myself to a point that I know that certain others can't get to because there's something in the head often of somebody that in professional sport where you can push past that limit where most people say, I've just got to stop. And obviously you don't want to injure a muscle or bone or whatever else, but that that bit that tells you to stop doing it is pushed so much further back. And the feeling of pain and working hard is still an addictive thing. I know I can't go out and win Olympic gold medals anymore. Like I, I fully accept that. But I can still push my body to the, the nth degree of my ability. And as long as I can do that, I know I'll get some solace from it. And probably the biggest thing I've realized, my ability to push myself, train and work hard is probably the best thing I can do for my mental health as well. So for me, I think I'll do it as long as I can. I can get behind most of the things that you threw yourself into, but bobsleigh, right? <laughs> like that's when I'm like... I, I... If you go to certain ski resorts, you can give it a go. So there are there. So if you ever if you ever go to San Maritz, Greg, I can you can absolutely, go down. Ins- I, I can assure you... <laughs> I can assure you that if I'm ever in San Maritz, <laughs> the very last thing that I'm going to do is check out if I can attach myself to a small tea tray <laughs> and throw but myself you can give it down a go. the mountain. That's not going to happen. But it's fun. It's fun if you're not taking it seriously. I take it seriously. It herniated a disc <laughs> in my neck. There badly. you go. There but it, you would, go. it wouldn't do that for you because you wouldn't go fast. What I did was nuts. Do you just keep turning up in your own living room and going, guess what? <laughs> Yeah. And then your other half just goes, oh, Lord God. Every, yes. That, yeah. What you just did then, yeah. I experience pretty much daily. Greg Rutherford, ex Scully, Ginger Wizard, thank you for completing with me. Thank you so much, Val. <laughs> thank you. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Emma Roberts. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Cathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Cacoutier and this episode was mixed by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag comforteatingpod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian.